Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I gotta tell you something, people. The gentleman on my show, years ago, when I was doing comedy in the Philadelphia area, a girl he went to college with came up to me. She was three years younger than me. We went to the same high school. I was friends with her brother. And she said, oh, a guy I know from college does comedy. And I think he may have been performing at a club called Mitchell's in Palmyra, but I'm not sure. And my guest is a very funny comic and an actor. And the girl's name was Anna O'Brien, who knew him, because I knew her brother, Michael. And my guest is Adam Ferrer. How you doing, Adam? How are you, Steve? Anna Banana. That's what we called her in college. It's so funny, because, you know, I was one of the only kids in my high school. I went to Cherry Elise, who, who did comedy. And so when no one else really knew any comics, and she was like, oh, I know this guy, Adam. And it was just funny. And I think you, I don't know if you remember Mitchell's. I think you played there. It was, it was this Italian guy named Joe Donato owned it. Joe Donato, Mitchell's in Palmyra, New York. He was the first guy to ever headline me. I came out to Edgar Winter's Frankenstein. That's what I remember. He was the first guy to ever headline me. The club was in trouble. It was, uh, it was, he reminded me of my uncle. It's funny, no, because I look back and I, you, you probably have played the comedy cabarets or the comedy works because I was a Philly comic. Started the cabarets, the Philly, I do helium in Philly now, and we did the Tower Theater a couple times for the, uh, the Rescue Me comedy tour. Now, when you were in college, well, when, were you? Did you go as an acting degree, or what was your major at Maris? Like, when, when did you know you wanted? I got to out with a degree in finance, and I can't balance my checkbook. I just, <laughs> I went the first year to college. I was in a band, uh, and I, I it was great. I was out of the house, and uh, uh, I made friends I thought I'd have for the rest of my life. And then, then like the second year of college, you, you've gained fifteen pounds. You sober up a little bit. You look around. You're like, this guy's a drug addict. That guy owes me money. This guy's gonna he's gonna be dead in an hour. I gotta get out of here. So uh um when I went to college I studied uh, finance and I think I got a minor in communications and I just did it because my father and mother said, You're going to college. Steve, I had no idea. I wasn't gonna go to college. I was in high school, I didn't know what I was doing. My father said, You're going to college. And I said, I don't wanna go to college because you're going to college. He goes, Why? I said, Because you can. I said, Well, nobody else went to college in the family. He goes, They're stupid. I said, Oh, all right. So I went for my parents because I, you know, I didn't I didn't really want to go. I wasn't burning to go, but they said you're going to go. My father sat me down and goes, look, my job is to give you a better life than the one I had. So pay attention because I'm tired and I'm running out of money. You're going to college. I said, OK. So so when did you get the comedy bug? Because, I, I mean, as a kid, I watched comedy and I didn't know I wanted to do comedy until I did this stupid talent contest in college and I yeah. did a Rick Springfield air guitar everyone went crazy and I went oh I love this attention what was it for you that made you get into comedy I got out of uh uh college right and I well basically what happened because Maris was I was from Long Island so it was two and a half hours so I could drive home and back I always had a car and I always worked so after the band kind of went sideways I was like I got to get out of here. You know, I'm just, it's, I'm not, I got, it just, it, it wasn't sitting well with me. So I drove home and I worked every weekend at a fence company, which I was working in high school. So I was driving forklifts and digging holes and putting up sheds and stuff. Uh, and I went back up and I was working with funny people. I was working with uh, Joe Curry, who's a comic now, uh, Anthony uh, Cumia from Opie and Anthony is an old friend. Um, and having a sense of humor was very coveted in my, in my uh, neighborhood because we didn't have anything else, you know, making people laugh is is uh, something that uh, it was it was valued in the in the circles I ran in, and I always wanted to try it. So I got out of college, and I told my parents, "Well, we've done one of your things. Now I'm going to try one of mine." <laughs> and I went to an open mic Wednesday night, Eastside Comedy Club, Long Island, New York, Jericho Turnpike. 
Um, and I made the mistake of telling my mother I was going to do it. Steve, my mother was the original Twitter. You tell her, and she tells the world. So the entire neighborhood showed up because I, I was a funny kid. I didn't know it, Steve. You know, we don't know. We just the kids just do. They don't know. They just do. So I was a funny kid, and I loved comedy. I loved Richard Pryor. Under my bed was the Carlin albums, Richard Pryor albums, uh, and one of the first Sports Illustrated swimsuit issues. That's what was under the cover, un under the bed. Um, and I would always make people laugh on a school bus, purely as a defense mechanism, so I wouldn't get beat up, you know. Um, and then when I tried, I told my mother's going through this open mic, the whole neighborhood showed up. So they sold out this little club, and I, I was nervous as hell. I went on stage, and before I could say anything, a cousin or someone said something. So my five minutes was just making fun of him and everybody. So I killed, and I, that's when I got the bug. I got bit right there. You know, I remember, I don't remember much of it. I remember seeing black, but just when I got that laugh, just that boom. Isn't it, isn't it funny? I remember my first time was at the Comedy Factory outlet in Philly. And it was an open mic. And my mom, I said, take this class at the Learning Annex. I'll tell you where to do stand-up. So I go there, and I have a great set. What you think is a great set. And then you get coggy. Yeah. You get your bridges big. You're like, oh, yeah. Sure, oh, yeah. this is easy. This, And then the next, next time I ate shit, and I didn't come back yeah. for like a month. How was your next time? After your whole family was there, how was the next time you did it when there was nobody there for you? I, the next time I did it uh, was actually, I thought that was it. I said, oh, that was, ooh, wow, wow. And I had gotten lucky because my first agent happened to be in the audience because he booked the club that night. Um, and uh, I got a call a couple days later from this guy, Tom. You know, he goes, hi, it's me, Tom. He met the other night. Yeah, hi, Tom. He goes, you open Thursday? And I'm thinking, yeah, you want to go bowling? I'm like, I don't know what the hell he's calling about. He goes, I'll give you 20 bucks to go open for Jackie Martling. Uh, at Sand City, which was this little club in East Norwich, uh, I said, uh, "I said, okay." He goes, "Yeah, just go, just go do your set." That's all I had, Steve. I, I, you know, I had so, and they gave me the twenty bucks, you know. So I went up, and I did enough. I didn't, I didn't bomb. I didn't do as well as I did before, but I didn't bomb. You know, it, it kind of went okay, and I didn't have anything to compare it to. You know, I just had the the one thing I did, which I was still reeling from. So I, it didn't discourage me. It made me want to do it again. Um, and that's, I didn't know I was getting an agent, but he turned out to be my first agent. He kept calling me to do these little, and in fact, when I started in 88, there was bar gigs because that's when everything just started. Um, and uh, owners thought that, found out that stand-up's cheap to produce. You just need a mic and a stage. And a lot of times they didn't even have that, you know? So I was working, uh, and I had a car as well. So I was getting these gigs here and there. And then I joined an improv group because I wanted the stage time. And, uh, they were, it was free stage time, you know, if you join the improv group. So I auditioned for an improv group at uh, Jimmy's Comedy. So I got stage time Wednesday night. And then after that, I learned, I learned what an open mic was. And I would just haunt the open mics. And I would just go and try and get on. Um, and then I would always haunt um, the Eastside Comedy Club. And Richie Minivini, the owner, who happened to, is now one of my dearest friends, figured out that I was funny and I had a solid... 10, 15 at that time, whatever I was working on. And I was there. So on Thursday nights, he could host the show, pay the headliner, put me up for 15 minutes. It wouldn't cost him a dime. So I'd sit at the bar and wait for him to go, hey, you want to go up and do some time? <laughs> and that's the way Richie said, I would. 
and it, it meant so much to us. You remember when we started? It meant so much to us to get on stage at that time. Oh yeah, I mean, I we had the we had the, the clubs in Philly, and we had the open mics, and we had Big Daddy, late Big Daddy Graham, who had these one nighters that were hell. Big Daddy Graham, his head his head shot on a tricycle. It's yeah, yeah. He passed away. You know that, right? I know. Yeah, yeah. it was. Uh, but he had these clubs. He had Mitchell's, and he had this place called Friendlies, which was awful. You just went up and you ate crap for twenty minutes. And you got your hundred and twenty-five bucks, and you drove back into Jersey. So, when did you start feeling like you were getting in the groove for comedy? Because you've been doing it for a long time. You're a very strong headliner. But when did you feel like you were really feeling your oats? Was it you know as you worked a lot, where you you know you were getting on stage as much? You know, did you become a middle very quickly, or did you did you? I know what happened to me was I got I got I was working um, on Long Island and I was opening at these little ballroom gigs. And the reason I worked so much was because I had a car. I drive all the headliners in New York. We would get gigs in Connecticut because I, I, I hooked up with this uh, guy that booked all the bars and clubs in Connecticut. John Schuler. And he would use headline. Don Shula, yeah, who sells real estate now in Florida. So <laughs> Shula called me up. By the way, one of the most honest booking agents I, I ever worked for. He auditioned me at the Steak and Sword, and then he goes, okay, I'll use you. And then whenever I call him up, he goes, Adam, I got a gig. It's uh, far away. The audience sucks. And it's not a lot of money. You want it? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I would pick up all the headliners at the, at the improv when the improv was in New York, and I would drive them to the gig, uh, and then I would drive them home. And the, the deal was you drop them off at the, at the improv. Well, I'd say Patty Rossborough was one who requested me a lot because she felt safe and it was a woman on the road. I said, listen, you're going to get out of my car to get into another car. And pay for a, a cab to go home. I'll drop you off. Where are you? So they would request me because I knew what the job was. I knew you open the show, you don't wreck the room, stick to your time, bring them up, and be on time. It's it's simple shit. But a lot of comics didn't have a car or knew to do that. So I started doing that as opening acts. Then uh, Schuler started at the lesser rooms. He started headlining me. So I then I got a taste of that. So I started doing that. And then I uh, I started going into uh, uh, stand up New York, Upper West Side. I never went into the city. I was I was doing comedy about a year, two years before I ever even wanted to go into the city because I knew you had to make a good first impression. And those city comics were different from Long Island comics and Philly comics. It's a show with us. I don't know if it's a, su- a suburb thing, a blue collar thing. It's a show. We're using voices. We're we're moving stuff around. We're using a microphone. It's it's we're very that that's the style of, of when I came up. It was very much a show. And the city comics were, we used to call them Tonight Show comics. Suit, tie, set up, punchline, segue, set up, punchline, just talking. They would get eaten alive. There's that famous story of shooting stars in Yonkers. You know the story about the, the headliner? No. Suit and tie comic on stage, right? Late show Friday. He's, still, he's dying. He's set up, punchline, segues. He's dying. And he breaks. He looks at the audience. He goes, I don't care if you guys laugh or not. I've done this stuff on television. I know it's funny. From the back of the bar, someone screams out, he's wounded. Let's get him. <laughs> so so you're, you're doing comedy. You're starting to get in these headlining gigs. And then now when do you start branching into acting? Because you're someone who's had a very successful career yeah. in both avenues. A lot of people don't make that transition. You know, you've done well on that. When did you, when did you get the acting bug? Was it from when you did the improv troupe? Or was it just someone, your agent or manager said, you know what, Adam, you're a good looking kid. You're funny. You're likable. You should get into acting. I had come out to L.A. at this point. I, I got I got a uh, somebody saw me on MTV or something, and I they get, I got I got my first television deal, which all that did was move me from being a poor comic in New York to being a poor comic in L.A. So uh, 
I was I was coming out here to talk to the people about the deal before it was before it was finalized. So while I was out here, I got I think I was doing a Tonight Show, and um, I auditioned for a part on a show called Flying Blind with Taylor Leone and Corey Parker, and I got the gig. You know, I just they just sent me in to do it, and I got it. And when I was on the show, I was very Steve. I was so nervous. I didn't understand. I didn't. I don't know how to act. I'm a comic. You know. Yeah, how did you I deal with? How did you deal with? You know, I always think you know when when comics or even theater people go into a TV, they don't understand. Like, here's your mark. Because it's a comic, we know no, your mark no. is don't fall off the stage. That's what your mark is. You know, you you yes. How did you acclimate to that right away? I mean, did you just sit there and go, screw it? I I, I got this part. I just got to do it. I, I nodded yes, and I went, oh, of course. By the way, parenthetically, to this day, I haven't hit a mark in 20 years. So maybe I just can't. haven't hit it even on Top Gear. I didn't even hit it with a car. So that's how bad it was. So I would just, I kept my mouth shut and I just nodded, yes, yes, yes. And I was funny enough. I knew enough to to leave space for somebody else, you know. So it's like there's a lot of the comics, a lot of, and just know that it's usually us on stage, you know. So we know our timing. We don't know somebody else's timing. The thing that saved me, Steve, it was a three-camera shoot, so it was a studio audience. So I knew audience timing, and they knew audience timing, but there was no audience at the rehearsal. So I was a little choppy, and I just kept my mouth shut, and I just kind of I listened without talking. You know, My father always told me, when you listen, you learn. When you talk, you teach, and you've got nothing to tell nobody. Keep your mouth shut. So I just faked my way through the whole thing. I liked it enough to know I wanted to do it again, and I knew enough to know I don't know how. And that's when I, I joined an acting class. Now, specifically a, a television acting class. How was that important to you? Because, you know, you, you're going in there. And I always say, if you've been on stage doing comedy or something, that yeah. you're going you're gonna to be able to act. Because you know the pressures. You know you have to deliver. You know the isolation if you're having a bad set. How did you acclimate to the class? Because it's someone, you, you got an audition, you got a TV spark early. Was were you very? Did you learn a lot in that class, or, or was it very yeah. helpful to you? I'll push. I'll push back on your statement. Just because you can do stand up doesn't mean you can act. But you, you, but you I don't have the fear. You don't have the fear of getting on a set. Mm, again, if you haven't been on TV, you know I, I will. They, they're two very different disciplines, and the reason I say that is only because of my own personal experience. I, I'm, my own personal experience was you have to. Uh, we're very. It's a very. Not selfish, but uh, you. What happens in acting is the 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 story takes place in the space between two people. Okay, uh, it's been my experience in stand up that the magic is between me and the audience. That space makes it go up here. But but that audience is just giving you feedback. They're not giving you stuff to react to. You know, does that make any sense? Yeah, it's. It, I understand. Yeah. So uh, so when I went when I went into acting, I had to learn to listen more. I had to learn to realize that my internal timing isn't the timing of the scene. And I had to realize that it was a lot harder for me to learn how to act because it's more of an it's more of an intimate craft because it happens here. And you can hide on stage, believe it or not. I can be it's easier for me to be intimate with 400 strangers than it is to talk one on one. Don't know why, just is. Because when you're saying stuff on stage, it's in a bit, it's in the context of entertainment. For whatever reason, that's easier for me. This close connection, when you have to draw on honesty, is, you know, it, it's a learned craft, you know. So it, it is a little, it was difficult for me. And, and then I went from comedy to drama, and that was a whole nother box I had to open. 
I want to ask you about the show. And I found when I when I first started dating my wife, I used to come from L.A. back to see her, and I had my little tablet, and I would watch the job. And the job was a really good show. I found it when I was in Atlanta airport on a layover. And I'm like, what am I going to watch? Tell me about that show. Because it should have been a lot more popular. It should have been ran a lot longer in my eyes. Oh, yeah. How, how did you get that part? What was it like? Because it was, I mean, you had John Ortiz. You had just a great cast. You had uh, Dennis Leary, of course. Tell me about how you got that gig. And what was it like your days? Because it seemed like you were all just young guys having fun. Oh, we were. That that was that was the best one of the best professional experiences I've ever had. And found and the foundation for friendships I still have to this day. I went into a, an audition room. You know the drill. They're going to record you. You're on videotape. So you're thinking, well, I'm never going to see these people again. So you know, I did the gig. I went home. Phone rings. They want to test you um, for the job. You know, usually you go in. It's it's casting director, producer, studio, network desk, right? This was different. I went in, I just put it on tape, and I forgot about it. Then I went right to test. They want you to read with Dennis Leary and test. Um, and just a funny side story, I was in a deal at Fox at the time. So they, they bought me. So I theoretically couldn't do it because what they do for people in your audience, I know you know, but... You have to sign your, your deal before you test for the network because what they don't want to happen is the network going, we want Steve. And then Steve goes, well, it's going to cost you this now. You know, you got to make the deal first, right? So I couldn't sign the deal because I was under contract to Fox. I really loved the part, right? New York City cop, how do you not like that? And uh, I call my manager. I go, call Fox. I'll give him the money back. He goes, you're not giving the fucking money back. <laughs> I said, I said, call him. So a couple phone calls later, he goes, do you really want to do this? I go, yeah. It's the biggest bet I ever laid in my life, but I laid it on me. So I had to get out of that deal in order to go and do it. So I gave the money back. Gave the money back. I thanked everybody, and they, they took it. And they, they actually said, you know, go with God. You know, we, we tried this because it was a couple of scripts that we read and I didn't like. And they were like, we want to find something. You know, it just it wasn't, it didn't feel right. So I gave the money back. I go in, and I'm reading with um, Dennis. Uh, Peter Tolan, who wrote the show, Dennis, Jim Serpico was a producer, and it was at Chelsea Piers where we shot Law and & Order. And I walked in, and it's just Dennis. This was the best audition I ever had. It was just Dennis, Peter, a cameraman, and that was it. You know, there was no suits, there was no nothing. What I didn't know was the camera was shooting the scene, and it was going on a closed-circuit TV to all the ABC suits and the Disney suits. I had no idea, so it was very relaxed. And I went in with Dennis, and uh, I read the scene with him, and then we started improving. He threw me something, and I threw it back at him, and I started making him laugh. And now it was like muscle memory, because now it's turning into, you know, it's just you're, you're improving. I don't know how to do that. You know, I've been doing that for years. So it was great, and we just clicked. And then I got a call a couple, a couple days later, and they said they offered me the job, uh, and I took the job. And so we're in the makeup trailer. One of the first first days we're in the makeup trailer. And I had done Letterman the night before. So at 6 o'clock in the morning, I'm sitting in the makeup trailer. Dennis comes in. He's got a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. He kicks my chair. And, hey, I didn't know you were stand-up. I just saw you on Letterman last night. Which should indicate to you the state my career was in if he didn't even know I was a stand-up. So, and we just, uh, that was one of, the, one of the funnest shows we ever did. Because what we were doing was on ABC, but it was a single camera, no audience. And it was a, it was one of the first cable shows on network. You know, they that was always single camera was always cable, and we were doing it on ABC. 
and we were getting 10 million solid every week. You know, now that's that's a home run. But back then we were up against West Wing during the peak of its powers. So and what happened to us is we went two years and then ABC, the presidents comes in and anytime they change heads. Shows get canceled that are on the bubble because if they're a success, the other guy gets the credit. And if they're a failure, you get the blame. So tell me about your Letterman set, because, you know, that, that was such a big thing. You know, I mean, we're around the same age. You know, originally it was yep. the Carson Tonight Show. But then when Carson left, Leno was big. But Leno, Letterman was like the real a hip, hip gig. How long did it take you to get though? Did you audition a bunch of times for Letterman, or how long did it take you to get? Yeah, it? what happened was I got very lucky, Steve, because I was one of the one of the, one of the only guys that did both. You know, I got to do the Tonight Show and Letterman. Usually, only had to do one, uh, and I had done the. I think I did the Tonight Show first. I, I did the Tonight Show a bunch of times. But I did them all with Jay, and I did a couple with Jimmy. I never. I was too young to do them with Carson, so I did. So I did them with Jay. Did them with Jimmy. Um, I did Arsenio. You know, I did, uh, you know, all the other ones they had. And then I got the Letterman set, you know, and I I, I don't r- recall how it came my way. I, I put a set together and submitted it. Um, and I got bumped the first time I got bumped. Um, <laughs> so my parents come in from the city and Long Island. Come, uh, Steve, you got to understand people coming in from Long Island to the city. That's a pilgrimage. You know, that's, you know, <laughs> Italians don't travel well. They paint the basement red and green and they put a kitchen and they live in their own basement. And they don't they don't travel. Columbus had to go to Spain to get the ships. It goes back for centuries. So they came all the way into the city. Eddie Brill was booking the comics at the time. He was a friend of mine. So he got my mom and dad in early. And it's the Ed Sullivan Theater. Steve, the Beatles are on that friggin' stage. I'm I'm I couldn't I'm over the moon, right? So I'm standing there in rehearsal. Eddie brings me out and shows it to me. And I look up and my dad had gray hair. There's a shock of gray hair. And they're sitting front row in a balcony. And I see him for rehearsal. My father gives me the thumbs up. And I, and I see him sitting there. Okay. So I go back in. And I get bumped. I guess, you know, they ran out of time. So uh, Dave says, so Adam Ferrara, uh, we can't find him. He jumped in a cab. We don't know where he is. So we're going to have him back. All right. They, Eddie brings my parents back. My mother. Now, my mother's loud. My mother's loud. And my father's loud. My mother walks into the, the, we're in the collective green room with everybody around. My mother comes walking in. Well, somebody tell me what the frig just happened here. I said, Ma, Ma, calm down. They ran out of time. Well, we're here. I'm not coming back in. Let's do this. I go, Ma, it's not your time. They ran out of. So I did the gig and uh, I got the, you know what I do? I, well, I, I have them on my wall in New York. I used to take my cue cards because they had cue cards with my name on it. And then. So I got my Letterman cue cards. I got a bunch of Tonight Show cue cards. Um, I got a, yeah, I got, so those are, I, they're, on my, they're on my apartment in New York. Now the acting, you know, you said you started getting into drama. When did you get the drama book? You were on Law & Order. You mentioned that. What was, did you, you had like a, a it was, was, were you, had a pretty dark episode in Law & Order? Oh yeah, oh, I'll tell you that story. So I, that was the first straight dramatic gig I got. Um, and from that I got others, but that was the first straight dramatic gig I got. And, Working with, I think, what what helped me find that place to sit, to, to be true in those imaginary circumstances without getting the laugh and that reinforcement of the laugh, was working with Dennis. Because Dennis writes the spectrum of stuff. You're funny, drama. So you're as an actor, it's, it's one of the best experiences you can have. So I got a little taste of it. So I go in to do the monologue for Law & Order. And I get the gig, right? So I call my, I call, uh, my mom. We shoot the thing. I call my mom. Uh, it's going to air. And this is when Law & Order was on NBC. Uh, what was it? 10 o'clock, whatever it was. 
So she invites the whole neighborhood over. She, she, the whole basement, they're on, they're on TV trays. My mother made a lasagna. She's wearing a corsage. It's a big event, right? All the Marjan ladies are there. Da, 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 da. Boom, boom. Guest star, Adam Ferrara. Look, they spelled his name right. Everyone's happy. They're all excited. I come on the, I come on the, uh, the screen, and I'm playing a pedophile. <laughs> I remember that episode. It was, it was dark. My mother, nothing is said. Nobody eats the lasagna. I think the corsage wilted, right? Everybody leaves silent. My phone rings. I'm in L.A., right? My phone rings. It's my mother. Hello. What the hell is wrong with you? I invited the whole neighborhood over, and you're playing a baby toucher. Why didn't you tell me? I go, Ma, don't ma me. I had your father bring out the garbage pails to the curb. I don't want people to see me out in the street anymore. So, so you're getting the acting bug. Now, you're still doing stand-up as you're doing yeah. the acting. Now, Rescue Me, you end up on that. Which Rescue Me is a show. It's funny. I knew this young guy in L.A. who's hanging at this little Italian restaurant with us. And I said, you got to watch Rescue Me. Like five years later, he watches it. I, I get a text. Oh, my God. Thank you for turning me on to Rescue Me. Yeah. Did you guys know how special that show was when you were doing it? Because that was a special show. That was a hip, cutting-edge yeah. show. And it was looked, once again... It looked like it was just fun to shoot. That's the thing about working with, with Dennis. It, it's fun. I mean, I've been so lucky to be in family environments on a set. Nurse Jackie was like that. Top Gear was real like that. So, yes, in, in answer to your question, you are correct, sir. We were having fun making it. And did we know? No. I mean, I joined the cast uh, a couple of years in, and uh, we were having that much fun on the job. That was, you know, if, if you, you ask anybody that did both, Lenny Clark, Dennis, uh, Diane Farr, the job was just, that was the one. But Rescue Me was great, too. And uh, it was the same environment. And it was the same, there was a lot of joy in the making of it. So uh, I, that, that translates. The camera, the camera picks up thoughts and feelings. So I'm glad that it, that it reached you. Now, at what point... Okay, you're, at this point in your career, you did Rescue Me, and then of course right. Nurse Jackie comes up. Are you still are you still trying to get sitcoms? Or I mean, as an actor, we'll take any role. But did you really were you focusing more on drama at this point, or were you saying I really want a sitcom? No, I really. Uh, the dream for me was to be, you know, the sitcom. You know, the the way we saw them as kids. You know, that was the dream. But I I I've always. I never thought, I, and again, this is probably a comic mentality, not, not, not to just cast a wide net on all of us, but I never thought I deserved anything. You know, I was just grateful I got them. You know, so I'm doing Rescue Me, I'm doing stand-up, and we're doing the Rescue Me comedy tour, which was a lot of fun, because for three years we were on the road as comics. You know, Dennis and I knew each other as actors, and he knew Lenny as Lenny Clark as a stand-up, so, but being on the road as comics was just, it was just so much fun. So I, I was doing that, and then one night on the tour bus, um, Dennis pulls me and Lenny aside and goes, what do you guys think about doing uh, you know, nine more episodes of Rescue Me and then shooting it in the head and that'll be the end of it? And I remember, I, I looked at him and went, no. What do you, we don't have Ice Age money, you skinny Irish fuck. Think of us. And he laughed. <laughs> so he, uh, we did 18. He goes, I will do a straight 18. They'll cut it in half and they'll, that'll be the last two seasons. So I needed a job. You know, I saw the, you know, that was the kind thing that Dennis does. And most, most people that have, that are on the shows that are number one on the call sheet know that everyone's making a living here. You know, this is the job. So, 
to get to get a heads up that you're getting canceled or or the show's coming to an end is is valuable. You know, no one else knows it, but you have time to look for another gig. So I had got it. I figured out what do I want to do next, and I wanted to act, but I got offered this car show, uh, a pilot uh, for the History Channel. Um, okay, so I like car. I love cars. I can't fix them. I still can't. You know, my dad can fix anything. And then my love of cars came from my dad because that's when I would spend time with him. And but I don't have the if-then go-to statement, that mechanical flowchart statement in my head. Um, but I understand them how they work, and I got my my job was to hold the light, Steve. That's what I had to do. <laughs> so, so I get an offer to do this pilot, and I liked it. I said, okay, great. So I shoot the pilot. It doesn't go, but history likes me, and unbeknownst to me, they had bought the rights to Top Gear, which is a car show from the UK. It's worldwide. I mean, it's 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 the biggest show in the world. The United States really didn't know about it. So I get a call from my my manager. He said, uh, they're not picking up the show. I said, all right, it was fun. He goes, they want to meet with you. I go, why? He goes, well, they want to meet with you. Okay. So I go to New York. I have a meeting. Um, and they said, do you know the show Top Gear? I go, yeah, because I watched the clips online. It wasn't here. Uh, and he goes, well, we have the American rights for the show. I said, oh, don't screw it up. It's a great show. Don't screw it up. And they laughed. He goes, well, we'd like you to consider being in it. I go, I don't want to screw it up. Uh, you know, because I wasn't interested in doing an imitation of, you know, reading for the part. Of. He goes, no, no, no. We want everyone's personality to be the same, just in the context of the show set in America, not in the UK. And the thing that made me take the meeting was it was produced by the same people that produced the UK. So I knew it was part of it was the mothership. This would like this would like be. The Law and Order SVU. You know, this would be a spinoff. But it would be, the shepherd of it would be the people that have a vested interest in keeping the quality up, if that makes any sense. So I get a call to go meet out here in L.A. I get a call to go meet uh, the producers and uh, go meet the producers of the show. Okay. And, Steve, I didn't go to a studio. I didn't go to a producer's office. I didn't go to a set. It was like, go to the church parking lot, look for a Mitsubishi Evo and some cameras, all right? Like it was a ransom drop, you know, and no cops, right? So I get there, and there's a bunch of English guys with cameras, and there's two other guys and a, a Mitsubishi Evo, and I meet everybody. All right, let's just try something. So they put us all in the car, and Tanner Faust, who was on the show, is a race car driver, you know, stunt driver, race car driver. So he starts doing donuts and throwing us around, and we're laughing, and, uh, and I start scheming. I was like, so you can drive, you're like, you can let's say you could drive like this you're a fast and you know stunt driver race car he goes yeah he goes so theoretically you could be a wheelman if we wanted to pull a job what so we start i think we started planning a bank job and we were arguing because i'm saying no let's hit a casino and we're arguing over what 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 we're gonna rob you know i think that's what i I vaguely remember something like that and this was a long audition steve this i I go home it went okay two weeks later i get out of call to come back I go home, a month later, I get another call to come back. This was six, eight months of going back. Then I told him I wasn't coming back. I go, look, nothing's going to change. The mole's not going to go on the other side. This is it. You got enough tape. You go, no, I'll come back. And so I went back, and I didn't know that they were just weeding out everybody else, and they wanted to see more things. And, and eventually they called, and I got the gig. And I just thought it was going to be a summer gig. It turned out we ran for like six years. What is some of the craziest stuff he did? My nephew's a huge fan of that show. My nephew loves cars, man, loves it. And uh, what were, I mean, he's one of those kids. He's just, he was going to school to be an engineer and he said, no, I want to be a mechanic. So he left school 
and he mm. went to a mechanics school, which he was a kid who had could have gone through engineering, so he didn't really fit in with the other mechanics. And they just said, right. don't, don't tell him you're from Haddonfield, New Jersey. They'll look at you differently. And uh, tell me some of the crazy shit you did on Top Gear, because it, it must have been fun, because you, if your dad loved, your dad must have been very proud, because he loved cars. It must have been cool for him. Yeah, the, the, the sad thing is, not, I mean, he, he passed away before he saw anything. He passed away during, um, I was shooting a movie at the time, uh, and uh, we got the call, you know, they found something, you know, run out, see pop. And uh, he, he didn't make it till, till the air date. But uh, yeah, that, that's a sad thing. But some of the crazy stuff I did was uh, second episode in, I jumped a 76 Coupe de Ville about 40 feet in the air. Didn't mean to do it. <laughs> Here's what happened. We were shooting a, an episode was retracing the roots of NASCAR, which is moonshining. That's where it came from. That's where the, the you know, the, the uh, jaybreak turn, that's where all that stuff came from. So we had to pick a car uh, to run moonshine in. And I picked a 76 Coupe de Ville because, listen to me, what else should I be driving? So I get this big car. And you know the reason I picked that car? I figured if we're going to be in the woods doing stuff, we're probably going to have to sleep in the cars. And I know I can lay out in that car. <laughs> I know I can lay out in the back seat. So that's why I got it. Because that thing was a monster, that car. So I got this Coupe de Ville, and one of the challenges we had was there was a motocross track, this little off-road track, and I had to, uh, the, the moonshiners would evade the police by going through the woods, so we had to go up the motocross track. So I'm looking at it, I'm like, mm, it's not going to make that, it's not going to make that, big girl's going to get stuck here, and right before you go up this, this little ramp, this little dirt bike ramp, you're supposed to go up and over and everything, um, there's a water, you got to go through water, and I'm like, mm, if I get stuck in that water... There's no way I'm going to get out and come up that hill. So I beaten the hell out. I just put my foot in the floor and hung on. All right. I just, I lifted in the turns and I was still sliding this thing around. It's on bald tires. It's old and tired, but it's given me everything it's got. I punched it going right through the first, going right through the, uh, the water. I go up the ramp, right? And all of a sudden it got real quiet for a long time. <laughs> And we were shooting in North Carolina, and way off in the distance, I heard, yeah, boom! I hit the I, I, I bent the whole front clip of the of the caddy. It's, you can see it; it's online. It's called the Flying Coupe de Ville, and it's bent. I bent the whole thing. I, I there was not one jar of moonshine that survived. It all cracked. Everything broke. Uh, and that's when and Tanner Faust, who's the stunt driver came up to me afterwards. His face was white. He just looked at me and went, dude. <laughs> now, now you're doing that. You've done so much. And you work with Jack, uh, Edie Falco. What was that like? Because, you know, she's she's like a stud actor. Like, she's like ah. got the chops. I mean, what is what was that like? Do you get intimidated when you have to go on a set? I mean, you're used to going in front of a crowd. If it's a shithole you're used to it. You know, you can pull through. But what's it like when you go onto the stage and you're confident because they wouldn't cash if you weren't good. But when you go right. with someone who's so, such a powerhouse, what goes through your mind as an actor when you're walking in going, I got to do a scene with her. Are you anxious or are you like, I'm ready to hit this man and hit this hard? No, I'm nervous. You know, I was very nervous because my audition was with her. I didn't, I never, they sent me the script. Here's what happened. I was shooting Top Gear and I was gone. I was gone for a while. And I, I called my wife. I think we were in, might have been I was in Iceland. We were shooting in Iceland. So I called my wife. I said, I'm coming home. 
Uh, cars dropped me off Friday. It's pants-free weekend, honey. Me, you, the dog, no pants. Let the chips fall where they may. I'm coming up. Okay. I get home, kiss my wife, kiss my dog, uh, drop my pants. The phone rings. My wife is upstairs. I'm downstairs. And uh, it's my manager. I pick up the phone. I went, no. <laughs> he goes, listen. And he told me. So I went upstairs. I said, I'll call you back. I walk in the room. I see my wife. She looked at me and goes, what? I go, they want me to fly to New York and read with Edie Falco. And she just looked at me and said, put your pants on. I said, okay. <laughs> so I fly in, and I'm reading the script. I'm reading the thing. I'm doing all my work on the plane. And it was odd because I rehearsed it with my wife, but I never... There was no, like, you know, levels of doing it. you just thrown in to do it with Edie. Okay. So I walk in, and there's a bunch of people there. Tons of people. And uh, I say hello to everybody, you know, because they're like, what are you doing? Just sit down and read. <laughs> you know? So I read with Edie, and it just clicked, you know. She's so, I'm going I'm to use the word powerful and gracious as an actor. She's so present that the, the space between us Steve is this fucking big. The only thing I can equate it to is um, in Michael Jordan's book, he said, when you're in the zone, the rim looks like a big bucket. You know, it's almost like time slows a little bit and she can provide. I don't she just that that's what I mean when I'm saying she's gracious as an actor. That space is just there. And we did the scene. We did three scenes. And it was just fun. And she's from Long Island, and I'm from Long Island. So we drank water from the same well. So I think, you know, there was one thing where I had to look at her, I had to do something. I forget what it was, but there was a non-spoken communication where I either rolled my eyes or I did something, and she picked up right away on it. You know, because culturally, we come from the same place and the same background. So uh, I, I, I just remember that moment feeling really good. And I left. I, I left, and I always, I always throw the sides out, Steve. I'm like, all right, this is my way of saying goodbye. But I felt good about it. And it was one of the auditions where I felt good, like, if I don't get this, there's nothing I can do. I did the best I can do. I'm leaving satisfied. I looked up, and I went, thank you for this opportunity, and I moved on. And I, I'll tell you what I think really helped me in that audition. And I don't mean to ramble. If you want to go somewhere else, you let me know. Keep what on. really helped me was... I read for The Sopranos nine or ten times. I'm not exaggerating. And when you read for The Sopranos, I got an apartment in, in Greenwich Village. When you read for The Sopranos, you got to be at Silver Cup Studio, which is in Queens, at 5, 5.30, because that's when David Chase is reading people. So I got to fight rush hour in New York City on the end of the R, going, going to Queens in this crush of humanity, mumbling like Luca Brazzi going over my line, to get there to see a line of all these gindaloons that look just like me. Nine or ten times I went back. I never got a gig. Nine or ten times. Finally, by the fourth or fifth time, I walked in, because I knew, you know, the same people. I walked in, and I went, what aren't you going to like this time? And they would laugh, and they always said, thank you, Adam. But Jackie was shot in the same spot. I was going to the same kind of area. You know, that was at Silver Cup, and Jackie was at, um, uh, name is, they shoot Sesame Street there, Kaufman Astoria. But it was Queens. It was the same... It was a, there was a muscle memory of me going on that subway to Queens to read. So I wasn't nervous because I was used to it. I really think that helped me, that re repetitive of the adrenaline coming up, going, taking the subway, mumbling to yourself. I really, really feel that, that that calmed the machine down so I could just be in that space with Edie. 
and it was great. It was I grew more as an actor uh, on that show because I had to be more vulnerable on that show than I did on Rescue Me. You know, Rescue Me is a bunch of alpha males, and I had to I channeled my father because that was the biggest authority figure I could because I played the chief, um, and I got a lot to do. But with Edie, it was more intimate because it was I did two years on the show, and it was just me and her. So it was it was an adult relationship, me and her. Um, so I got more to do in a in a uh, a place of vulner more vulnerability than I did before, and uh, I, and just being with her, you know, just being with her makes you elevate your game. Now that you're doing this acting, are you writing? Are you still writing stand up? Because you know, I wanted I want to find out about how your act has changed because you are married now. You know, it's all, yeah. every, every comic develops, you know, when we're younger, hey, you know how it is. And you go through the ages yeah. and you get older and you start maturing. Through. You're a confessional comic, sure, which we both are. When you were doing these shows, were you still writing stand-up or were you saying, okay, I'm putting stand-up on the back burner right now because you, to do a Nurse Jackie, to go and to do scenes with Edie Falco, you can't be fucking around at night. You know, you, you got to sit there. I'm sure you have to prep. I yeah, mean, no, I was still doing stand-up. I wasn't... I wasn't afforded the amount of time to do it because I was still doing Top Gear at the time. It wasn't linear. I was doing Top Gear and Edie and, and Nurse Jackie for two years. So I didn't sleep a lot. You know, I just went, I would go from a mountaintop somewhere to fly to New York. You know, a lot of times I was taking a red eye, I was sleeping on a plane, you know. So uh, stand up kind of not to the back burner but i didn't tour as much as i i should have you know or could have i was i didn't have the time so when top gear ended i started doing more and more stand-up um and uh you know it, like you said you write about your life so but nobody wants to hear how tired you are on a plane so in order to write and write a lot write about life you got to live it you know so it took a while to get the machine back up and running but uh but yeah, no, I uh, I still love I still love every uh, thing I do, which is great. Even podcasting now. Well, it's a lot of work doing that, but I still like doing. Well, it. when you did your comedy, your uh, the the scary in here, the, the last special, yeah, yeah. How long did it take you to prepare that? Because you have to do a whole new hour. I mean, and, and now after yeah. you've done that, is that hour burnt now? Or when because you're going you're going doing a bunch of dates now? Can you yeah. go back into that, or tell me about how you got ready to do that album? Because like, whole... it's, it's a balancing act. Because I have some, it's funny because I just got an email um, from someone that asked me to do my uh, anxiety derby bit, which was a it's, it's a two minute bit. I, did, I think I did it on Corn. I did it on the James Corden show, um, and I haven't done that bit in you know two years. Uh, but because they did it, I'm going to do it. They said, I'm coming to your show the 17th at Uncle Vinny's. I said, I will do the bit. Can you, they asked me, will you do the bit? I'll do the bit for you. I'll dust it off and I'll do it. So what you want to do, there's a balance of giving people new stuff. And then the people that, a lot of people bring other people. You got to see this guy. You know, he does this bit. So you don't know what those bits are. Like now I know I have to do that bit. So every once in a while I'll dust something off and, and I'll do it. But it, for the most part, it's all new. Um, because I want to keep people coming back. That's you know that's the name of name of the game. It's a weird thing because some people want to see the hits and some people just want to be entertained. So it's a balancing act. Now, do people ever expect you to be you know 
Top Gear guy. I mean, and it's probably not probably over the whole new crowd to you because it's like these car guys are like, hey, you yeah. know, it's like, I mean, and, and if you go in and you're sitting there and you're doing your act, I, I was watching your act about the guy eating spaghetti in the car. You know, if, yeah. you're, if you're doing that, they're going, well, wait a second. We we want to see this. How is that with you? How do your crowds, because you have such a, a wide crowd base. You have the nurse yeah. Jackies, the, the rescue me's, you know, the people who love you just for your stand up, the Top Gear. How do you, how do you, I mean, have you ever had crowds where it's like separated and you're like oh shit yeah what am i going yeah, to do i have a lot of people that come come to the show and they they say i didn't know you were stand-up i'm like well, what do you think was going to happen here <laughs> do you think i was going to do donuts in the parking lot you know so uh it's an eclectic i still get a lot of firemen i was at the improv in chicago and the, the firefighters always come out to that show and it's always good to see them and i'm you know i recognize them and i see them again and that, that that's very nice to me uh, that's very, very. I'm very humble that they they remember me and keep coming out. But the crowds are diverse, and they always leave happy. Steve, I don't care where you're coming from. I know if you're leaving with a smile on your face, I've done my job. So I hope that answers the question. Tell me about your podcast. Uh, it's called the Adam Ferrar Podcast. Thirty minutes, you'll never get back. Uh, and it's basically here's the show in a nutshell, Steve. When I was a kid. The best night's sleeps I ever had is when I was upstairs and I heard my mom and dad and their friends downstairs laughing. Don't know why, but that always brought me comfort. So I started with a feeling. That's the feeling I want to communicate in this podcast. Because they were important to me on the road because they keep me company, you know. So my show opens with me, my wife, my best friend, and my producer pal talking about a topic uh, that connects to a one-on-one interview that I've done with a celebrity. Um, And then, like any good group of friends, we talk about them when they leave. So then we do another 15 minutes about, did you hear when Nathan Lane said that? You know, so it's like you're coming over my house, somebody comes over, and then we talk about them when they leave. So then that's the whole show. And I've been so fortunate to have such a wide variety of guests, of people that I want to talk to. I mean, like I mentioned, Nathan Lane did one for me. Edie, of course, did one for me. Uh, Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top. Uh, Ann Wilson from Heart did one. Gabriel Iglesias. Brian Regan's done a couple. So I get to talk to all the people I want. I had... Um, an FBI agent that worked on the Bundy case, I had him on. That was creepy. And I'm pretty sure Bundy did it. <laughs> I Oh, I had Katie Coleman, the astronaut, on. She lived in the space station for six months. And she plays the flute. She was in space, and she played the flute with Ian Anderson from Jethro Tull. He's on Earth, she's in space, and they're doing a duet. I've done nothing with my life. Dude! I was going to ask you. You've done so much. How do you how do you keep the energy up? We're but we're getting older. Like you, you know, yeah. you you're, the tour. I mean, when we were young, you know, you could eat diner food at, at two in the morning, or you'd hang out with the comics. We used to go to the South Street Diner in Philly because there's all those yeah. comedy cabarets that you talk to like four in the morning. Then you get up and I'd go sell fax machines, and then I go out at night and perform. Now, if I did that, I'd die. I mean, how do you keep yeah. how do you keep the energy going? Because you're such a busy guy. I have a mortgage. It's fear, Steve. It's, you know what it is, but you're right. The grind is, it's still like, I got to do it. Like after I get done with you, I got to edit an interview for next week's show. You know, it it, it doesn't stop. I don't, I do it myself because I need, I'm a control freak. I even told my wife, I said, listen, I'm dying first because I don't want to know life without you. And I'm going to get up there in heaven and I'm going to straighten out any ex-boyfriends that think they're going to spend any friggin' time with you. So I don't know what you got planned, but this is the way it's going to be. All right. They had their chance and they screwed it up. So in answer to your question, how do I keep the energy up? I just keep going. I will tell you what's easier that I'm working on now in my life. I want to produce 
more out of joy than fear. You know, that's the worst is like, cause you worry about, uh, you're connected to the outcome. Like this has to be good. I got to get this gig. I need another gig. You know, you're always worried about where it's going to go. And that causes my anxiety and I got shit loads of it. So I want to keep producing what I'm producing, but I think we're at, we're at the point in our lives where we've realized this is all there is. If you're not enjoying doing it, there's no when then bet that you're going to be different and happy if you get something, you know? So I want to continue producing, but do it from a more positive place than I'm doing it now. Does that make sense? Yeah. I have one final question for you. What do you, what do you still love about standup? Because I got out of it, and then, but I occasionally get on. And when I go on, I did a set. I think you know Joe Matteris. Me and him went to high school together. Yeah, I know Joe. Me and him did a show, and there's like 300 people there. I've been on stage for two and a half years. I had a great set. I come home. I'm like, I have a glass of wine. I'm like, yeah, I want to do comedy. I, I, and then I'm sitting there going, yeah, I don't want to drive 50, 55 miles for like 40 bucks. I'm like, screw it. But when you get up there, you love it. But what do you love about comedy? And you're, you have the luxury where you have this tour coming up. You have a lot of, you have a lot of gigs. You know, you're, you're playing and you know people come to see you. You're a draw, okay, mm -hmm. which is, is great. But when you get up on stage, what is it that you just, you love about comedy that just makes you, it just makes you keep coming back to it? It's my state of grace. It's where the mind shuts off and you're just being it. It doesn't come from me, it comes through me. Don't know why, but when I'm improving with an audience where I don't know where it's going to go and they don't know where it's going to go, whatever I need to say at the time is provided for me by some external force, whatever you want to say. I'm not thinking. So that's, and I got that very early on. Don't think. I'm not thinking. Um, and uh, that feeling, whatever that does to the body, uh, or the, the, and the psyche is, is what keeps me coming back. And one of the things I also love is when I write something and I see a couple or someone just sh nodding their heads yes, if I can articulate an experience that we've both shared at a different time, that's very gratifying for me to get that experiential laugh. That really makes me happy when I can articulate a feeling, especially when it's, when it's a feeling that, that connects to a larger truth of understanding or acceptance of other people. You know, I think that's, you know, not, not to be too, I guess, pretentious about it, but if, if I, it's not that this shit's doing any good, but when it can, it can put out a positive message. And when people send me emails, like the one I just got, like I suffer from anxiety so bad and your bit made me laugh and I'm coming to see you. Can you do it for me? It brought me comfort. That's, that's kind of, for me, I interpret that of being of service, and being of service, I think, is uh, a lot of happiness lays there. Well, I want to thank you, people. And you want to have him of service, go to adamferrar.com. He has all the dates. He's going to be in my, well, about an hour from me on, on February 17th and 18th, Uncle Vinny's. I'm, I'm an hour away. I'm in Marlton, New Jersey. Cool. He has a bunch of places. How else can people get in touch with you, Adam? AdamFerrar.com. Follow me on all socials at Adam Farrar. There's a full list of tour dates. I'm heading out. I'll be in Wisconsin uh, first week of February. Then I'm going to be uh, Indianapolis second week of February. Third week of February, I think I'm at Uncle Vinny's. Uh, after that, I will be back on Long Island, my stomping grounds, I think the 24th and the 25th. And then I'll be at Bananas Comedy Club in March, first week, uh, yeah, first week in March in New Jersey by East Rutherford. So people, go check Adam out. Go check my website out, coopertalk.net. You can find over 940 episodes. You can email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, it's at coopertalk. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time.